0: I'm going to read our New Testament lesson, one of our New Testament lessons today, and then from uh, from First Peter, and then I'm going to kind of walk us through the gospel passage from John chapter 11. So you're going to want to hold on to that one. But First Peter five verses 10 and 11, it says this: After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you into eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So you'll see, uh, if you flip the page in your book, and you'll see that it says, discerning the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's my fault that that is printed there. We're, that's another topic. Maybe I'll come back and we can talk about that for another, another day. But, uh, about, gosh, about a year ago, uh, I started getting this pain in my back. And I thought, well, I'm 46 years old. Maybe just pain start to happen in your back at 46 years old. And I thought after a few days it would go away. And it didn't go away, and then it lasted a couple of weeks, and it didn't go away. And then all of a sudden, the pain in my back was sort of the pain in my chest. And then one day, my wife, Kristen, came to me, and she's like, would you quit clearing your throat? We're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm clearing my throat? She's like, yes, you're clearing your throat. And I thought, why am I, why am I coughing and clearing my throat? And I have this pain in my chest, and my pain in my back. So I go and I search, which is what you should never do. <laughs> when you have aches and pains and coughs and I search back pain chest pain coughing and it comes back with heartburn and indigestion So I go to the grocery store and I get some tums or some Over-the-counter stuff and I take it and it does nothing for it So I go to the doctor and the doctor says ah that stuff's junk forget it You don't even don't that stuff doesn't work. Take this and it's going to take about a month so I take that we get to about to this time last year, and it hadn't changed anything. So he says, I need you to come in. This was a Friday afternoon. I need you to come in. We're going to do a scope. We're going to look at everything. So I go in. They do the scan and all of that. I go home, and it's, I'm in the kitchen, and our kids are at school, and I'm kind of standing on one side of the counter of our kitchen. You know, you have, sometimes you have a bar in your kitchen. I'm standing there, and Kristen's standing on the other side, and my phone's kind of sitting between us, and we're just talking, And all of a sudden, my phone rings, and we both look down at it, and it's the doctor. And listen, you know, don't you? Doctors, I'm sorry if you're a doctor, you guys don't call anybody back right away. (laughs) But when a doctor calls you back, like 30 minutes after the appointment, it's not good. So we both look at the phone, and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. So I pick it up, and I answer it. And all I hear is, you have a tumor in your neck. And we need to see you tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., Saturday morning at 6 a.m. So we go in Saturday morning at 6 a.m. They do some more tests, they do some more scans, and they come back and they say, okay, it's not in your esophagus, it's outside of your esophagus, but it's about the size of your pointer finger. And it's growing from the front of your throat across your vocal nerve back to your spine. So that's why I was coughing, because it's like poking on my vocal nerve and my back hurts because it's poking on my spine. And they say, but we'll run some more tests, but we think, we think you're going to be fine. And I say, okay. So we take about four months to run all these tests. And they come back and they say, it is 100% for sure benign. But because it's growing in all these funky places, we need to go in and we need to take it. We need to cut it out. So last April, May, I go in, I have surgery. I have this awesome scar now from like here to here on my neck. They go in, they cut it out. And then what they do, they always go and biopsy it. And when they did that, they found that there wasn't just one tumor, there was another tumor sitting behind it. And that was cancer. Now, listen, I'm fine. They got it all. Everything looks great. I go back every couple months and they give me checkups and all that. But it has been, if I'm honest, a year, 14 months of just plain suffering mentally, emotionally, physically. There's just no other way to say it. It's not the worst cancer I could have had. It's not the best cancer I could have had. There's people that have suffered worse. There's people that have suffered less, whatever. But in all realities, that's what it was. And suffering, the topic of suffering in God is probably one of the most pointed topics that you could think or talk about. I mean, when we, when we get into suffering, and, and listen, Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. You don't even have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is or he did what he did to believe that's true, right? I mean, that's just a pro- We love all the promises of God. I'll be with you forever. I won't leave you. I won't ever lose you. But that one? That one's tough. But it's true, isn't it? I mean, listen, raise your hand. Have you ever suffered in any way, shape, or form? Come on, raise your hand. If you've ever suffered, the rest of you that aren't raising your hand are lying in church. Listen, when, when when we suffer, oftentimes what we do is we'll just, we'll deny it. People, how are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. Or, We'll just minimize it, right? We'll, we'll compare it to everybody else. And we'll be like, well, at least I don't have that. You know, at least I don't have this. Could be worse. Or we'll just muscle through it. Like we'll just white knuckle our way through it, right? Or we'll, med- we'll self-medicate. We'll eat. We'll drink. We'll do a little shopping therapy, right? Head to Target. Just kind of work things out. Or we'll entertain it like we'll Netflix or head on vacation or go see a Broadway show, of which none of those things are bad or wrong. But when we try to use them to calm our suffering and the pain in our life, it's a little bit like taking a beach ball. You've been at the pool or the ocean and you take a beach ball and you push it down underwater. What happens after a while? It comes exploding back, like you can keep it pushed down under the water for a little while, but eventually it's going to come erupting back up. And when it comes erupting back up, it doesn't just kind of gently comes up, it explodes up out of the water. And all of those things are common ways that we try to solve our suffering problems, but they actually don't do anything. Eventually they just cause more problems in our life. Now listen, if, if you go and Google ways to cope with suffering, you will get pages and pages and pages and pages of tips and tricks and advice on how to cope with suffering. But the truth of the matter is, when you're in the middle of suffering, you don't really need any more advice. Even you really don't need any more good advice what you need is some really good news. And so the passage we're going to look at today in John chapter 11, I don't want to give you tips and tricks and good advice for how to suffer well. What I want to give you is I want to give you some good news. For not if you suffer, but when you suffer. See, the, the question that I want to ask in this passage is God what are you doing in the middle of my suffering? Because I think that is really the question. Because if you can answer that question, it doesn't matter what tips and tricks you get, you can weather the suffering. And you cannot just survive it, you can actually thrive in the middle of it. And so, if you want to look at John chapter 11, verse 1, it starts like this. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, do you, see, do you see what's going on here? He keeps saying, He's ill, he's ill, he's ill. And then finally, it says, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. Suffering and God's love can coexist in the same space. Suffering and God's love are not mutually exclusive to one another. When you're in the middle of suffering and you go, God, what are you doing? Where are you? What are you doing right now? The answer to it is that Jesus is endlessly loving us in our suffering. He's endlessly loving us in our suffering. In Jeremiah 31 3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. In 1 John 4, the writer says, God is love. And in Hebrews 13, it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what that means is that your circumstances don't determine how God feels about you. God loves you with an everlasting love. God is love. It is his character to love. And he never changes. Which means your circumstances and your situations, no matter how dire they are, are not the determining factor of whether God loves you. Think about this. I, so my son, I, we have two kids, Gavin and Sophie. Gavin's 19, he's a freshman at college. When he was like this big, he had bunk beds. They're actually my bunk beds from when I was a little kid. And we actually put him in bunk beds, but we told him, Gavin, you sleep on the bottom bunk. We're asleep one night, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, you hear that, like, thud, right? And just a blood-curdling scream. Now, parent, you know that. You know there's, like, screams. There's, like, I'm not really hurt, but I'm going to cry and see if you come. And then there is, like, uh-oh, I got to go. And he, what he had done was he had crawled up in the top bunk in the middle of the night and decided he wanted to sleep in the top bunk. And then he rolled out of the bed and fell out of the bed and woke up falling onto the floor, and he broke his arm. Yeah, Al was right. Now, I know some of you are like, what kind of parent are you to not put bed rails up on the bunk bed? Listen, we had bed rails, okay? They were just in the closet. So, lesson is, it's not enough to have the bed rails. You have to actually put the bed rails on there. But that's another, we can do a parenting seminar, you know, sermon another day. But listen, Gavin's broken arm was no reflection on how I felt about him as his dad. His suffering, it wasn't like, oh, Gavin, you broke your arm, I love you less. My love for my son was not dependent on whether his arm was broken or not broken, whether he had fallen out of the bed or not fallen out of the bed, whether he was in pain or he wasn't in pain. That wasn't the determining factor in any of that. And so you don't look at your circumstances to determine how God feels about you. Do you know where you look to determine how God feels about you? The cross. The cross is the place that you look to know exactly how God feels about you. And when Jesus Christ went to the cross, it says that God so loved you, loved you to an extent that he would give his one and only son to die on the cross. The cross is the definitive statement about how God feels about you. In your best moments, in your pain-free moments, and in your suffering moments. And so what is God doing in the middle of your pain and suffering? He is endlessly loving you. But verse 4, it says, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Now that's a that's a bold promise, isn't it? Now if you know this story, I mean you can read on further down in this story, and what happens to Lazarus? He dies. But what Jesus is not saying is, it's not that he's not going to die, because here's the spoiler alert, he actually raises Lazarus from the dead. And so what is happening here, just like suffering and love can exist in the same place, suffering and God keeping every single one of his promises can exist in the same space. And so what is God doing in the middle of your pain and your suffering is that Jesus is faithfully keeping all of his promises in our suffering. Do you know how you can know? Do you know how you can know that every single one of God's promises are trustworthy? That he will keep every single one of them? Paul says, in, when he's writing to the Corinthians, all of God's promises are yes yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's not just a, that's not a nice idea. That you, that is something you can actually bank your entire life on. And the reason you can bank your entire life on it is not just because Jesus died on the cross, but that he was resurrected three days later. The resurrection is, it's the sign and the seal that you can take every single one of God's promises and bank, put the full weight of your life on them because they're trustworthy. He triumphed forever over Satan's sin and death. And that's how you can know every single one of those promises are so real. And there, honestly, is nothing more comforting than knowing that God is completely in control, especially in the face of suffering. So he goes on and he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The the glory of God the glory of God is like the weight of God. It's the, weight, it's the fullness of all of who God is. It's all of his love, all of his greatness, all of his power, all of his sovereignty. And to glorify God is to worship God and to ascribe to God all of that worth and all of that value and all of that weight. And just like love and suffering can exist in the same place, and just like the promises of God and suffering can exist in the same space, so God's glory and suffering can exist in the same space. Do you see what he says? It's for the glory of God. It's so that the Son of God may be glorified. When Jesus was on the cross in John 17, right as he's about to say, it is finished and died, the point of greatest suffering this world has ever known he looks up and he says father the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you that it was actually in the point of greatest suffering that god found his greatest glory that jesus would glorify god in first corinthians ten thirty one, the apostle paul says whatever you do Do it all, including suffering. Do it all to the glory of God. Which means that your pain and your suffering are not pointless. That what God is doing doing, in the middle of our pain and our suffering is that Jesus is ultimately revealing God's glory in our suffering. Think about it. There is nothing greater than the glory of God. And that God would leverage not just the good points of our life, but the hard and the painful points in our life. I mean, what could be more glorifying to God than when we have nothing else other than him and to say, God, you are enough. You're enough. In the middle of my pain, in the middle of my suffering, you satisfy my soul. If all I have is you, It's more than enough that God would use our pain and our suffering for the glory of God. It goes on in verse 5, and it says Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's crazy. Because he loved them, he stayed? Then after, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anybody walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, now I think, I don't know, this is, like, this is just me over here, but you know who always opens their mouth first among the disciples? Peter. So I'm just in my own mind thinking this is Peter, but it's all the, some of the disciples. And he says to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, He'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking a rest in sleep. Listen, if if you find Jesus hard to understand, you will make a great disciple. (laughs) They thought Jesus was talking about him being asleep, and so then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And then he says this, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe in him, but let us go to him. Do you see what he said there? For your sake, for your sake means for your good. That, that in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of my suffering, God, what are you doing? And he would say, Jesus is graciously working everything for your good, even in the middle of your suffering. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for the good who lo- of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. All, all things Not just good things, not just great things, not just happy things, not just positive things, but for those of us who love God and are called according to his purpose, who know Jesus Christ, everything that is happening in our life, God is working every single one of those things together for our good. That Jesus is graciously, working for our good and our suffering. That verse in First Peter that I read you earlier, that verse, there's actually those two verses were the verses that I hung on to in all of my cancer. Where he says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, I meaning everything God does is always grace all the time. That he's not being ungracious in my cancer. That everything he is doing at every moment, even in our suffering, is always grace all the time. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says that that sometimes God's work in our life hurts. But he says it's discipline. Discipline. That it's discipline like a father disciplines his child. That it's not for harm. That word discipline is actually, it's almost the exact same word as the word for disciple or for discipling. Which means this, if you're a follower of Jesus, the hard things and the painful things in your life, that is God shaping you to be more like Jesus discipling you he's not punishing you come on parents we know this as parents don't you if you have kids you know there's a difference between punishment and discipline and god is not punishing you in your suffering now here's why i can say that without a shadow of a doubt you hear all the time, well, maybe God's paying me back, or I've just been waiting for the shoe to fall, or man, I don't know, I'm getting what's coming back around to me. God, if you are a follower of Jesus, God is not punishing you in your suffering. And the reason I can say that so definitively is because on the cross, Jesus Christ took every bit of the punishment you and I deserve. He fully satisfied the wrath of God. He made a full payment on our behalf to the Father. Which means if God was fully satisfied in Jesus Christ, if he bore the full punishment of our sin, it means that there is no more punishment for you and I to take from our Heavenly Father. He is completely satisfied. Which means everything he is doing in our lives is not it is not to punish you. It is not to pay you back. It is to shape you into the image of Jesus. One of the, there's, a, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that talks where Paul talks about the thorn that's in his side. And he talks about God giving him this thorn to keep him from becoming conceited. And I remember thinking, all right, God, if it's true that what you're doing is not punishing me, but discipling me. If what you were doing in Paul's life by giving him this thorn was not to punish him, but was to make him less conceited, to actually make him more humble, to make him more like Jesus. All right, God, what is it in my life in the middle of this suffering that you're trying to do? What is it that's so deep down in my soul that I don't seem to be able to root it up out of myself, and you're going to work in this thing, and you think it's going to take this thing to dig it up out of me to make me more like Jesus. And when I got there, the only response I had was, all right, God, let's do it. Let's do it. Because beyond anything, I want to be like Jesus. And then in verse 16, Jesus goes to the two sisters After four days, he makes his way, Lazarus has died, he makes his way to the sisters, and each of the sisters comes out, and they meet Jesus separately, but they both say the exact same thing. They both say, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. They were hurting. They were suffering. And what's so amazing is in the middle of their suffering, Jesus meets them each uniquely in the way they need to be met. What is God doing in the middle of our suffering? Jesus is compassionately caring and comforting us in our suffering. You see, when he goes to Martha, Martha says, if you had been here, I'm hurting. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then Jesus goes on this theological discourse about the resurrection. What she needed was the theological truth of the resurrection to comfort her. And then Mary comes running out and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And what the scripture says is he sits down with her and he weeps with her. He meets them exactly where they are. When they come running out and they need him and they're suffering and they're hurting, he doesn't send them away. He doesn't give them a lecture. He doesn't correct them. He compassionately cares for them. That that word, compassion, in Greek, the word is splagitsomai. Splagitsomai. It actually means from the guts, which means from Jesus' deepest guts, from the core of who he is, what he is doing is he is loving us and caring for us and compassionate towards us in the middle of our suffering. And then in verse 38, here's the way the passage ends. Then Jesus, deeply moved again from his guts, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, there'll be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said to the Father, Thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. And his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips and his face is wrapped with a cloth. Pit, just picture this. I mean, I think we sometimes skip over this. Here's this guy who was dead for four days. They had wrapped him. They had mummified him. He gets up, walks out of the tomb. He's still wrapped around his head. It says he's still wrapped around his head. And then Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. In our suffering, Jesus is giving us a community to help us walk through whatever we're going through. Jesus said to them, unbind him. Like he's not dead anymore. He doesn't need to walk in dead man's clothes. He needs to walk in living people's clothing. So go, unbind him from all this thing that's got him all wrapped up. He's surrounding him with a community. I mean, think about how silly It would have been when Gavin fell and broke his arm if he had just looked at me and said, Hey, Dad, this is kind of embarrassing. I don't really want to go to the hospital. I don't need any help. Dad, this isn't really anybody's business. I can just, I mean, I'll just handle it. I'll take care of it myself. You know, it would sound ridiculous because hospitals are designed to help busted and broken and sick and hurting people get better. That's the church. That's the the them, that's the beauty. In the middle of our suffering, the thing to do is not pull back from the community of faith, but it's to lean into them. That's what the church was designed for. And then the last thing is this, Jesus is pointing us to the ultimate hope and healing found only in his life, death, and resurrection. This story about Lazarus this event that actually happened, this isn't about Lazarus. This is pointing to the fact that Jesus was going to die on the cross. They were going to put him in a cave, put him in a tomb. He would be there for three days, and then he wouldn't just be raised. Lazarus would die again. But Jesus was resurrected to new and everlasting life. And so Jesus was using this suffering and this pain in their lives to point them to the ultimate resurrection, to the ultimate healing. And not just that resurrection that would happen some months, weeks later, But do you know that because Jesus is raised from the dead, there is coming a day when he will return? And Revelation says that there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. All the former things will have passed away. There won't be any more war. There won't be any more cancer. There won't be any more heartbreak because Jesus Christ was raised. From the dead. And so the question is this for you and for me. It's what Jesus asks in verse 26 Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Listen, when when you're suffering, if you're suffering right now, I hope you grab on to one or two or three of these things that Jesus is doing right now in your suffering, that you would know that you're loved. That you would know that he cares about you. That you would know that he is working for the ultimate glory of God. That you would know that right now he's shaping you to be more like his son, Jesus. And he's putting you in a position where you would put your ultimate hope in the resurrected Savior. And when somebody else that's suffering around you, listen, go take them a casserole. That's awesome. But when you take them a casserole, take them some good news. Take them the good news of the gospel and love them. And you know what? This world, I think this world, the greatest witness to this world is not our victories and our greatness. The greatest witness to Jesus to this world is what we say about Him in the midst of our pain and our suffering. That He's enough that he's all satisfying, and that our hope is solely in him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you raised Lazarus from the dead, but more than that, thank you for the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Thank you that in him one day he will return and every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more crying. And you, Lord, the God of all grace, will completely restore, establish, and confirm your children. To you be dominion forever and ever. Amen.